Hello, you are listening to a very special edition of the March Mad Men podcast. Tonight, we're stepping out of our tournament format to talk about a movie released about a month before we record this tonight, When Evil Lurks. It's fair to say this flick turned our heads, and so we're going to give it, if not the classic loving autopsy, at least a thorough inspection at the scene of the crime. As always, I'm John Evans, and I am joined by filmmaker and producer Michael T. Kuchak and screenwriter Vikram Wheat, two men who have penned excellent horror movies that made their way to the screen. They know and love this genre, and the three of us have recorded countless hours of podcasts on the subject, so I am really excited to get into it with them tonight. And when evil lurks is pretty meaty fare, let's put it that way. What are we drinking tonight, gents? I've got this going. It's the Elysian uh, Great Pumpkin, Imperial Pumpkin Ale. Uh, that's what was in the fridge. Uh, Mike, what do you have going tonight? It's uh, a little bit of red wine and vodka and, um, and some seltzer water. It, it's effective. It is a drink that doesn't have a particular name. In my youth, we used to call stuff like this jungle juice. I'm going to call it the Kuchex uh, spritzer. Yeah, it, it, it is a little spritzy. I wanted something special for uh, this podcast because I'm really excited to talk about this movie. This is a Cure 8. It, it is a collaboration between Allagash and some other brewery whose name escapes me. And so it is a, a mix of the Allagash Curio, their, their bourbon barrel aged triple, and a Pilsner which are not two things that I would, would necessarily put together, but they have done it. And, John, I just want to point out, for the benefit of you and our regular listeners, that it is only 6.5% ABV. Oh, it's a session for you, man. But it is also quite tasty. And those, it's, it's one of those things, much like Jungle Juice, where you think no one would put those things together if it didn't taste kind of good. That is, in fact, the case. All right. Well, we got Cooch Juice and Vic Spritz. John, please never, never say Cooch Juice to me ever again. It's a hot load of Cooch Juice right in your ear, guys. Uh, back to the film. Uh, yeah, the the log line, if, um, if you're not familiar with this film, which I – I say get familiar quick, but uh, it's the residents of a small rural town discover that a demon is about to be born among them. They desperately try to escape, but it may be too late. And of course, this is from Demian Rugna, the, the maestro of Argentinian horror who gave us Terrified a few years ago and a film that did very, very well in the haunted house season of the March Mad Men podcast. So, yes, uh, all three of us were excited to see it, and I don't think it let us down. We're going to get into this in quite a bit of detail. The first segment here that we're doing will be spoiler-free, though. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, don't worry. Uh, after we convince you to do so immediately, uh, you can come back and finish the show. Uh, gentlemen, I want to pose this question to you before we dig deeply into the film scene by scene. Why should horror fans run, not walk, to see when evil lurks? And if they only hear you say one thing about the movie, what's that going to be? Well, it's scary, for one thing. I'm terrified to creep the fuck out of me. And I am really happy to say that Rugna, you know, brought it with the new one. It very much 
builds on all of his strengths on Terrified. It's Terrified Part 2 in a lot of ways. Anyway, well, yeah, he actually, by the way, he got together like a lot of the same band. Like it's the same DP uh, production yeah. designer and editor. There is a spiritual evil going on and nothing is explained. In a lot of ways, the exact opposite of what we see from, like, say, the um, you know the Conjuring type films. I never want to put those films down because I think that, like, in terms of like crafting visual scares, those films are amazing. They're they're incredible, but they are very much quote unquote American horror movies in the sense that, like, they feel the need to explain exactly what's going on. Here is the demon. In order to defeat the demon, we have to figure out its name. So to figure out its name, we have to do X, Y, Z. And if we get the name, then we can do bop, 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 With the Rugna films, the less you explain, the better. And to paraphrase Lovecraft, the oldest and most powerful emotion is fear. The oldest and most powerful uh, type of fear is fear of the unknown. The more you explain something, the more you can understand it. The more you can understand it, the more you can get your head around it, and thereby it becomes less horror and more thriller. For some people, they might watch these films and be confused, or they don't, they're lost, they can't engage with it, thereby they can't be scared. That's fair. Uh, everyone likes their own toppings on their own pizza. I get it. But for me, the less I know about what the fuck is going on, the better because that's the most scary one of the criticisms of this film and we'll kind of get into it is that there are so many rules and there's so much talk about that and 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 so it's arguable whether the film does explain too much or not now i don't you know i don't personally feel that way either but that is one of the criticisms that's been lobbed against it this is the first real original take on the possession film that I think I've seen since The Exorcist. They really do a, a very, they, I'm going to say Ragna. He does a really fascinating thing where he shapes a world around the idea, but sort of what Mike was alluding to, the world around this idea of a possession is totally different than anything you've ever seen before. And it really took me two watches to unpack all the things that were so different. And in general, as a filmmaker, I just feel like there's something that the word that came to me when I was, when I was trying to think of how to describe it is there's something unruly about his films. They buck against everything you sort of want them to do, which is a lot of what Mike was saying, right? There is no scene where captain, well, there is a scene where Captain Exposition or Professor Exposition comes in and tells you sort of the things that you need to know, but somehow it's not enough. Yeah, and like it, said, it's like, just one little oh, sliver of, of yeah. the entire world of it. I, I think what Rugna does between Terrified and this film that is brilliant is he weds uh, a spiritual infection with a physical infection. So the first one is it's infectious through the water. It's this house is haunted, and now the ha- the house is on the other side of it is haunted. And now the neighborhood is haunted, and it's spreading. And how is it spreading? It's spreading through the water. In this one, it's one guy gets possessed and the characters immediately react like they found uh, typhoid Mary. Like they have found one guy who has gotten the bubonic plague. What are we going to do with them? 
oh, we're going to drag him out in the middle of the field and we're going to run away and burn all the clothes. Somehow, none of what happens in this movie feels like Vincent D'Onofrio showing up in Sinister. Lynn Shay showing up in uh, Insidious. Right. So it's it manages to give you some broad outlines, but I think it's that the rest of the world outside of those that that little window that Mike's discussing, the rest of that world is so fuzzy that it allows anything to happen. And that really feels to me like like Rugna's chief impulse is he wants to create a world where whatever weird, twisted, fucked up thing pops into his head, he can he can make it work. And it feels like part of this universe. And I agree. It definitely feels like it's of a piece with Terrified. So if you like Terrified, you are going to love this movie. It is an original and you don't get to say that very often. I mean, I think this movie was made for horror fans. I mean, because what we love are big, shocking moments that make you yell "Oh!" at the screen. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you're a horror fan, like some random decapitation or a stabbing is probably not going to evoke that reaction at this point. It's going to have to be different. It's going to have to be clever and and perfectly staged for maximum impact, which is what this movie does several times. Yeah, and like memorable talk about it years later kinds of ways. I really think there are scenes in this. People will be like, oh my God, do you remember that? If you see this movie, it's going to leave a mark. And I love that about it. Yeah, I I, mean, I I rate horror movies by how many times it gets me to say the words, what the fuck? You know, just watching characters get stabbed or chopped or bitten, X, Y, Z, has very little impact. But when something weird happens... Uh, that is still, you know, as viscerally, uh, you know, as being bitten or stabbed, but is also unusual enough to be like, what the fuck? For instance, Hereditary gave me two big what the fuck moments. The Vivitch, mm-hmm. the crows pecking your nipple. I, I think I said what the fuck out loud in the theater and people laugh at me. And Terrified is great because you get one in the opening sequence. And the other thing I was going to say, I mean, you guys covered it basically, but I, I felt the same way, that it just does demons in possessions in a way that captures that large-scale panic and societal implications that you want in a zombie movie. But it also has a lot of the sort of twisted evil of like an evil dead or the exorcist with the possessions having more of a cruelty and some degree at least of of intelligence, um, which is very chilling in its own right. It's just a unique and it's a memorable mythology that I think, and you guys alluded to this as well, it could be the basis for a whole series of movies potentially, because this is sort of the tip of the iceberg for a whole world to explore. And that that's pretty awesome. This movie is not trying to leave the audience reassured that there's a blueprint for defeating evil. You just have to be X, Y, or Z, and good will triumph in the end. If you think that might be a spoiler, I'll say it right now. I'm not telling you that everybody dies in this movie or something like that. But this is a movie that reminds the audience that if this kind of thing, this world that it is created for us to experience, if it was real and in your life right now, guess what? You're probably not going to be a badass who makes all the right moves and saves the day. And I appreciate yeah. that. The, the inspiration and empowerment that those other movies give you. But I think if that's all we got from horror movies, 
the happy endings would lose their value. And it's just, it would be like your mama always telling you everything's going to be okay, even when it isn't, because life isn't like that. And when movies pretend otherwise, it's not really doing us any good, at least if, you know, that's the prevailing sentiment. You need fucked up like movies like this to remind you that it's not all about strap on that chainsaw or <laughs> strap on the chainsaw. I don't know what I was saying Fire there. Fire the chainsaw! <laughs> you know, but just... Pack like, all their heads off! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, battle and go show evil who's boss. The Blumhouse kind of James Wan style of horror film. What I what drives me crazy about that is that what everybody ultimately falls back on is their love of family and their faith in Jesus. And like you just have to have a cross on the wall and yeah, you call a priest and and those sorts of things fix it. And there's something wholesome about that. That I think gives Damien Rugna like it, it like makes him wretch. And well, so he, this, he said he said he's not religious, and that's why he didn't want that to be a part of of this story. And you can tell mm-hmm. uh, he is he is flying in the in the face of that. He is running in the other direction. I mean, I would just I would almost love to see Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga from The Conjuring. <laughs> Up, up against uh, the evil in this movie because they would not last long. And that's, that's a brilliant short cool. film idea. Brilliant short yeah. film idea. I, th- I think there is something really interesting in that core concept of taking uh, a problem that is typically dealt with in a spiritual, religious manner and shifting it into a secular manner. Between Terrified and this film, he takes something that is ordinarily handled with like the power of love and religion and faith and that, 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 these very ephemeral things. And he puts them into the hands, uh, you know, it, it becomes like a, a disease. It becomes secular. The you first know, one, uh, I think terrified is even more scientific yeah, minded yeah. than this one. I would say this is, I think it's more mystical somehow. It's just not like Christian. It's not like, or, you know, or Buddhist or something, but, but there's so something like, sort of, uh, there, there are tools involved in the state and the church is like very clearly left out of it. You know, the church was not able to do anything about it. I do think though, that this movie has like, despite, yes, it's, it's this device or something. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like in terrified where they're talking about, well, maybe these are interdimensional beings or something. I, I right. think, in this movie, there it, there is sort of a I, I, I'm struggling for the word, but it has more to do with like ancient magic and mysticism, like pre Christ kind of thing. Right. The, yes. the one Lovecraftian thing that that we haven't touched on is the idea of of sanity. I kind of think of it of it being eroded steadily throughout the film. And I think our protagonist in this film comes in, Pedro, and this is a good segue into the first scene, but you know, he he presents as being the man in the room who knows what to do and you know, his brother's kind of a goofball, but but Pedro is he's just sort of resolute and knowledgeable and he kind of you you know, has an answer for everything. And then his, the psychic hit points of his sanity just get whittled away mm-hmm. in the course of these experiences. And you, you kind of see it, you see each one as he, he's rocked by these devastating personal blows, emotionally, psychically, psychologically. By the end of the movie, he doesn't have that sort of poise and rational thought 
that that the guy that we met did. And and that to me is very Lovecraftian because you know Lovecraft is kind of all about the more knowledge you have, the more your sanity erodes, right? Well, it's very much a story of a normal guy dealing with Mm -hmm. extraordinarily unnormal situations. And he's dealing with unnormal situations with the extent of the knowledge that he possesses, which is limited. And uh, it's limited because most people's knowledge is limited in this situation. So it's like it's very much we're coming into the story through the POV of the epitome of an everyman. Okay, we've laid out all the reasons for you guys to go see this movie, and uh, we won't go full spoilers just yet, but let's get granular. Let's talk about the beginning of When Evil Lurks. And I will, just to put the the scene in the guys' minds, we start with gunshots in, in the night. They're emanating across open fields and... A man runs to a window and is peering out into the gloom. And this is Pedro, our protagonist. And his brother Jaime comes up and they're discussing, wow, like what's going on? How many shots is that? What does it mean? There's five gunshots. Jaime speculates it might be a poacher, but uh, the more knowledgeable and worldly uh, Pedro says, you know, no hunter would would shoot five bullets. So they know something a little bit unusual and possibly problematic is happening and they're going to, they're going to have to deal with it. And that's like right out of the gate. There's no getting to know the characters. This is how we, how we meet them. Right. And it is one of the many things I love about this film is it literally like a race starts with a gunshot and doesn't let up throughout the entire thing. Literally, there's not a dull moment in this movie. It's like right from the first second of this film, there's a gunshot, there's immediately a mystery, there's implied danger, there's stakes, there's uh, uh, what's going on, you know, the characters peering out in the darkness, trying to figure out what's, what's happening. And it's, you're immediately grabbed, immediately hooked. You, you don't need like a big, like, hi, hi me, I'm glad that you've come out and visited me. That's that's a doubt. You don't need <laughs> yeah. that. You don't need any of that bullshit uh, because that's not why we bought a ticket to see this film. It's great storytelling. It's really good. What's not at the beginning of this movie is any kind of on-screen text. Mm You would open the grudge with when someone dies in the grip of a powerful rage, a curse is born, something like that. And this world has all these rules, but they're not going to give you any of that. Right. They're going yeah. to throw you into the deep end and then you're going to have to catch up. And it actually I mean, again, it took me two viewings to really catch up with this. Mm-hmm. But I love that, especially the second time I was like, holy shit, like they're not they're not giving you anything. I'm not sure when I really first realized this isn't our world. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I just assumed, well, maybe, you know, maybe we're just living in rural Argentina and they're reacting to this situation as it appears on the surface. It takes a while before you realize this is a crazy mythology going on here and they're referencing things that are not in our world. And that's why I acknowledge this film as a post-apocalyptic film because that's ultimately what it is. But it mm-hmm. doesn't – it does not – prepare you for that as Vic says with some opening crawl or you know a title card or something yeah, to set yeah. the stage 
years ago. That's why he happened. And now the people struggle. I recently rewatched uh, Dark City, for instance. And uh, Dark City, if you might recall, opens with a voiceover from Kiefer Sutherland, where he explains, oh, yeah, the aliens did X, Y, Z, and they're called the strangers and la, la, la. You can almost feel the weight of the studio note for this thing's this monologue's existence. All of the things are laid out later in the story. He says the you know, all of the facts that are laid out by Kiefer Silverland in that an initial voiceover are thoroughly and clearly described just later in Act Two, Act Three. Yeah. But someone somewhere was just like, who are these bald guys? What's going on? Why does everyone fall asleep at midnight? I don't understand. <laughs> That's the, yeah, the big difference between American cinema and a lot of European, <laughs> or, or, you know, anywhere else in the world, Asian cinema. But uh, I will throw out here that Rugna was working on a terrified remake, which probably would have been, you know, for our market and whether it was COVID or something else, I, I haven't, figured that out yet but that project died but he wrote this script in like 2019 mm-hmm. and as terrified which we all you know loved and discussed as it started to generate momentum that's why people were open to to this script and i'm actually kind of glad i don't know that we would have gotten this movie if he had done a, a terrified remake for europe and and the and the north american market I'm so glad that 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 kind of fell through because we get this another like raw fucked up like no compromise kind of a movie as opposed to him immediately you know tapping into our studio system in some way. Right. The magic of that is it increases the possibility that if he does come up here to do quote unquote the American version that there's that much more of a track lane for him to do that kind of storytelling. Yeah, well, he has can't. more, yes, autonomy now. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. So, look, I made two movies that tell stories in this manner, and both of them are very good, and a lot of people like them. What the fuck was Hollywood working on that, like, a remake of Terrified went to the back burner? I feel like Hollywood, especially, is just pumping out a lot of shit horror movies. And here's this guy with this brilliant proof of concept. You gotta wait. Yeah, let, let's get Rugna up here. Let's get Joko Anwar out here. The other thing about the way this opens is I think that a lot of the most interesting questions are the questions about what happened before this. Because we're thrown in at this at this moment, mm-hmm. there's a lot of questions that I have written down about these characters and about their relationships and about the world that they're living in. What happened 10 minutes ago? What happened a week ago? What happened uh, a year ago? And I think that unraveling those questions is is really part of the the puzzle box mystery that makes this movie so compelling. I actually love the fact that like I had to figure out how what was going on, and and I still have watched this movie twice. I'm still not a hundred percent sure. And uh, like to my mind, that's the best way to establish a franchise because it's like when you you know introduce these mysteries, these these tantalizing clues here it's like you want to know more it's like yeah you know like well later on the story when uh they mentioned that the town has like uh they, they've gone into lockdown per the protocols i'm like what what because <laughs> that immediately yeah. establishes that this is something that like you know was like the spiritual version of like a tsunami or a pandemic at some point in time like they're 20 years down the road from this uh, what I love is the 
again, going going back to the scene by scene, they hear the gunshots. Next morning, they go out and they find a dead body who's been like chopped the fuck up and uh, a bunch of equipment that they are mystified by. And what I love is, wait, we go from one mystery, we solve that mystery by presenting two more mysteries. What happens to this person? What's this weird equipment? You know, and that's great storytelling, especially if you're going to do genre storytelling. I mean, we're, we go from one mystery to two mysteries. From there, we go to three mysteries, you know, but it all feels like a cohesive whole. It's not like just goofy, weird stuff just to confuse the audience. It's like we're leading them into this world, and it's great. Yeah, so as Mike was saying, they decide to wait. They don't they think it's too dangerous to go out until dawn. And I don't know if they go back to sleep or they just wait, but sure enough, like as a we get a beautiful dawn shot of them crossing the fields and, and going into the woods and it's pensive but also kind of lovely. And they find this really messed up corpse like yeah it's it's missing a lot of parts and it's it's been cut in half and again like pedro as i alluded to before he's sort of establishing his bona fides even though like yes i get that he's an everyman and all of that but he could tell you how the body was cut in half right that it was it was a blade and not an animal and so that that tells you like okay this guy you know he knows some things he's been around but his brother isn't, you know, hip to that that knowledge. So he, you know, Pedro makes that observation because I think, uh, yeah, his brother Jaime is like, oh, maybe it was a puma. And I think, you know, Pedro's like, no, somebody somebody killed this guy. And then also Jaime uh, theorizes that Ruiz, the landowner who is the wealthiest guy in the area, that he may have killed this guy, um, which was kind of a uh, interesting random theory which of course doesn't prove to be true but just kind of showing the kind of paranoia that i think we'll see and ruiz shows a lot of paranoia as well Mm -hmm. uh later on but they find evidence that leads them to another neighbor you know she's almost a squatter but this woman who's living on uh on ruiz's land with her son and that like, it's clear from the documents that they find on this corpse that this guy was probably heading uh, to this woman's house. They look at the, the, the somewhat damaged remains of, of his gear, which of course we'll see later. Another cleaner uh, uses the same gear, which is uh, for the purpose of exercising uh, the demon. I think when Jaime brings up the idea of the puma, I think there's something hopeful about it. That he doesn't want this to be a murder. He doesn't want this to be an issue. And just like in Terrified, what you get from both of them is this reluctance to report things. And once you take it to the police, once you take it to the authorities, you are wrapped up in this Argentinian bureaucracy that I have, and I have some stuff that I want to read, but I think I'm going to save it. But you get wrapped up in this bureaucracy that people just don't want to touch. And I found that as a, one of the correlations between this and terrified that you could, you could see him kind of hoping that Pedro was going to say, yep, probably a Puma. Let's go home. Yeah. I mean, consistently there's this thread of like, ah, oh, do we want to make this official or like, 
you know, we put in the order for the cleaner like a year ago and finally went all the way through the bureaucracy and finally a guy showed up like way after we almost forgot about it. So, yeah, there's a lot of social commentary that, yeah. that is somewhat um, Argentina specific because yeah. I, I know I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but pesticides are a big thing. All of the agricultural um, industries in Argentina were using all of these hardcore pesticides, you know, to to make their their yields more bountiful. But all of the poorer farmers and stuff were being exposed to it, and a lot of children started to show early onset cancers and, you know, pretty fucked up um, consequences of this. And that was something that Rugna kind of paired with the exorcism concept. Like he had, these are two separate ideas he was, he was toying with and then somehow sticking them together is what you get with this movie. Yeah. And and, uh, I'm not trying to claim that like Rugna is like a hardcore libertarian or anything like that, but it's just like, it is, you know, and consistent throughout, like the characters are very like, can we handle this ourselves? Can we just like dump this guy in the field? Do we have to call the cops? Do we, cause it, yeah. as soon as you get in that, then oh, it's, it's going to be a thing. This entire mm-hmm. disaster happens because the woman, uh, with the possessed son does the right thing. She goes through proper channels and the proper channels do work. They do send out a guy just like, way too late to be effective. It's like by that time, the evil has gotten powerful enough to intercept him. Is what we find. It's like, well, I, I, when there's a fire, you're supposed to call the fire department, but what if the fire department doesn't show up for six months, (laughs) whole, whole neighborhood burned down. Thanks guys. (laughs) So then they, they go, and this is where the movie really takes off for me is when they go to this little house and this, uh, you know, very unassuming, like they're, they're super, super poor. But this woman, Marina Elena, has been trying to keep her eldest son, Uriel, um, alive because she knows he's rotten or possessed by evil. And she'd request this cleaner, essentially an exorcist, to, to come and kill him in the prescribed way that will end the evil. Because as we will learn, there's so many rules governing how you handle these things that Almost anything you do will simply spread the evil unless you, you know, follow the unbelievably uh, precise number of steps required to deal with it the right way. Yeah, um, I love the idea of like a we we take a possession story and run it through uh, a pandemic or radiation. You know, unless you do this exact the right way, it's going to figure out some way to sneak its way around the. The loopholes and, you know, but yeah, it's one has to presume that like that and they don't explain it, but they just say it would have to presume that there was an epidemic of uh, possessions. And everyone's just like, oh, well, this is the church's thing, right? And the church trooped right on in and either fucked it right up or made it worse or they just didn't do their job. And someone somewhere figured out like a secular way to do it with like these like weird telescopes and compasses. Not only do they not just all right, well, we're just not going to let the priests do this anymore because their their way isn't working. They're actually, they're actively ejected from the country. They're just like, all right, well, if you can't do your thing, then get the fuck out. There's a door. <laughs> Traditional exorcisms failed, and somehow they stumbled upon this technique that was effective. When you talk about a big idea, 
to drop into the middle of a horror movie like this is that the church is full of, of, of bullshit of people faking it for, for money and attention and whatever else. Mm-hmm. And that, that undermined the, the whole role that the church played in society. So when this happened, there was no one to turn to, but the government. All right. Yeah. So I, let's try to paint a picture a little bit about, about this scene, because I mean, this is really where you start to realize what we're really up against in this movie. It is beholding Uriel uh, as he's lying on his sick bed and he's this giant bloated. He honestly, if anyone's played left for dead, they know what this character looks <laughs> like, but, <laughs> but he's like pussing from every orifice and, you know, he's pissing himself and he's shitting himself. And it's, it's, it's really uh, unspeakably vile, uh, his, his particular brand of spiritual illness. And the idea is that he got possessed about a year ago. And she says they tried to pray for him and cure him through their faith and their spiritualism, and obviously uh, that failed. And they, they they called the right phone number, and yeah, they asked the government, and it was not fast-tracked, to say the least. So now we, we realize, our characters, Pedro and Jaime, that this is their problem now, and that this possessed man— is only going to continue to infect the neighborhood, the you know, the world, and and he's their problem now. And of course, they will go to the landowner, who's the authority in the area, who we've mentioned, uh, Ruiz, to try to figure out what to do with this guy. They've had like the prescribed solution to this problem has been removed, so. Already, whether or not they – and they do go to the police, but it, it is their problem now, and they're going to have to figure out a solution. You know, I will have to say it's very easy to critique the response to uh, the finding of barrels of trioxin in Return of the Living Dead. But, man, the military <laughs> is right on top of that. You call that number and shit happens. <laughs> The problem yes. gets resolved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, Return of the Living Dead paints a, a wonderful picture of the U.S. military. Yeah, yeah we're on I mean, it. They're right on <laughs> top of it. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a number on the barrel. Call it. Someone answers it right away. They know exactly what to do. There's people standing by. Whereas th- this is like, what if the zombie apocalypse was handled by, like, the, the laziest postal worker in the planet? Well, I filed my my change of address, but six months later, I'm still not getting my credit card bills. (laughs) I think the the other thing that comes up here that I found a a recurring and important theme is really sort of class. That the rotten is infecting the poorest, the poorest people there. And you're going to see a lot of derision just sort of heaped on them. Starting with Pedro sort of barking at her when she says that they prayed over him and they thought that would help. And he really sort of whirls on her and says the church is dead, which felt to me like you, you rube, you poor dumb rube, you're still praying. But yeah, this whole concept of who is the person that is, you know, again, quote unquote rotten and that the rotten is something that's going to spread. Where does it start? It starts with the poor, the dirty, the, the, these kind of dingy leeches, I guess. It, it is of interest that uh, our our characters are like kind of here 
so in terms of the socioeconomic ladder that they uh, are hip to the fact that like the people who are below them have allowed a rotten person to kind of fester out a long period of time their almost immediate response is to go to the guy who's directly above them Ruiz you know so it's like you know maybe you know the you know the don you know the landowner the the boss yeah. of this place maybe yeah. they'll know what to do there's no peers on in the immediate social hierarchy everyone has a distinct layer like yeah. uh the, these three characters that live in the place the epicenter are all pretty distanced from each other in terms of their their wealth and position. Yeah, they, they all live in the same patch of land, but they they're in different places in terms of how you know the you know deck of cards that they're playing. Pedro and and Jaime are the middle class, right? Yeah. They want yes. to do the right thing, but they also have a lot of you know they also have a lot at stake. Like they're you see them struggling to do the right thing. Ruiz has his own conspiracy theories, which I think are. Should be taken with a grain of salt, of course, but he evidences the belief that the government would love to seize his land. And so if they planted this or allowed or turn a blind eye to the rotten and then everyone has to evacuate if they all leave, which is basically the idea that Pedro and, and Jaime land on. Let's just get the fuck out of here. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Well, but then he's forfeiting his land. And obviously he doesn't want to do that. So mm-hmm. he thinks of this as a, a as a government land grab and, and he's not you know, that's why he takes the stance that he does. And the the, the lower class, you know, from him, uh, Pedro and, and Jaime, they, they go along with that. But they go first before they go to Ruiz, they go to the police. And that's where yes, they run I into- think you might be right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where they okay, run yeah. into this first like bureaucratic hurdle where they find out that Maria Elena uh, put in the request a year ago and the police really just shrug it off. Once it's – look, it's their – it's the government's problem. They give it to us. We move it up the ladder. There's nothing we can do about it. And so you right. start to see that that bureaucratic stuff that clearly yeah. drives Rugna crazy. Um, but you also get these hints about Pedro when the cop says – you know, you're going to have a hard time again, I think, is the is the line that he uses. Yes, you'll have a hard time again. And you wonder what that again means. So you start to get some of the character beats and stuff. Again, these questions of what happened before this movie started. Mm-hmm. That this is, is a very important time to interject that the translation is not good. Terrified was much better. Much, much, much better. There's a lot of translation issues in this film. But what I think you're alluding to, Vic is we do get hints of a backstory where our guy Pedro attempted suicide, potentially tried to kill his son who is autistic. Um, There's some dark shit in his past, but I don't know that we have to absolutely get into that right now. But I think that is what the police are probably alluding to. That's just the illusion that this is not the first interaction he's had with the police uh, and that it went badly for him the, the last time. Because we're going to learn again. We're going to learn that he has uh, a restraining order against him by his ex-wife, and some of that other stuff is going to come up. But I do think it's right. important that these are the, the middle-class guys. They're trying to do the right thing. So what do you do? You go to the cops. They go to the cops, and like it's a mess. The cops basically tell them to fuck off. So then, what do you do? Now you go to now you go to Ruiz. Now you go to the landlord. 
Yeah, I, I do like the fact that the characters, you know, at, at every social strata, try to do the right thing first. You know, and for in terms of like, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, they, they don't get crazy right away. Like everyone is like, you know, we're going to try to do this. You know, we're going to try to call the number. We're going to try to go to the authorities. We're going to try to do the right thing. And it's only, you know, it, it is when you get to Ruiz where like he like he's just like, nah, let's just dump him in the field. <laughs> the police sequence is is a, one of the most poorly translated of the whole movie. So I, I found it a little hard to follow, but the definite gist of it from the police perspective is they don't think uh, Pedro is credible, which is what Vic was alluding to there. But they also just kind of shrug their shoulders. You know, you could say the word lazy. You could mm-hmm. say bureaucratic. You could you could use a lot of different. But, like, they don't want to deal with this problem, and they would rather it just go on until they absolutely have no choice but to face it. Their reaction calls into question, like, the timing of how long ago was the initial disaster that caused the church to get kicked out for the cleaners to come in for there to be this bureaucracy in the first place. Because, I mean, I, it's, if it's fresh in everyone's minds, then the cops are going to hop to it, right? But it's like it's long enough ago, perhaps even decades, that there is a number – there is a ministry, but uh, really, you think it's uh, this, you know? Uh, the woman who was a charlatan and who is now a cleaner, Myrta, who's probably in her 60s, if I had to guess. So that puts the beginning of this, you know, no more than 35 to 40 years ago because it's all been in her, in her lifetime, right? So, yeah, we, we have a, a sense of when all of this started. But yeah, presumably it's more than 25 years ago. Is yeah, yeah, and uh, and that might not seem like a lot of time, but like I mean, do like give it five years, and people will laugh at the idea of someone being worried about COVID. This like society-defining thing that like you know five years later, you're worried about COVID. What the fuck? When I talk about the way that, that the story unravels, this is what I'm talking about. I love it when he's like, "Do you even know what a rotten looks like?" Because yeah, it's you're 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 painting this picture. This used to be a big problem. We haven't seen it in a while. This is a small town. You you I don't even trust you because of unnamed shit that happened in the past. So it's there's so much information in this scene, and it's all just doled out perfectly. Uh, I I really love it. But it is that line. Do you even know what one looks like? Because most people have never seen one these days. And at this point now, you're really starting to get the sense of like, oh, shit, like this isn't just rural Argentina. Like this is this is a world that is substantially different from ours. I think that's I think that's really awesome. I think this is a great scene. After the police scene, they they do go to the landowner who is depicted as, you know, very comfortable. He's always got a glass of wine and a nice window and a table full of full of bounteous dinner and and a, a lovely wife and they're very well off this shit is in his head big time he is not rational ruiz and, and we're gonna see how that plays out ruiz says when they when they bring it to him he says we've got to do something about this before it goes viral and i was sort of struck by the the potential double meaning of that right and they yeah. treat, obviously the, the possession itself operates like a kind of virus but I also had the sense that 
we don't want word to get out that, that this place is infected. You know, like it was, you yeah. know, he was, he was almost afraid of the stigma as much as he was of the actual uh, evil possession. That was, that was my read on it, Vic, was it was almost more of a social media kind of sense of viral. That... Don't, don't be, don't be surprised, John. <laughs> I'm shocked that I agree with sometimes, you. Sometimes I have ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smart. I can handle this. <laughs> I actually, I swear to God, I was just, I was slipping through my notes to make sure I have my, my head around all this. And I literally wrote that, um, Jaime reminds me of Fredo. Yeah, a little bit. Oh. I, yeah. The, 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 there is a certain, <laughs> like, you know, younger brother unctuousness going on there. Our, our disgruntled landowner uh, with the pregnant wife, Ruiz, really kind of goes ape shit, and he storms over by himself alone to Maria Elena's house, and you know, sticks a shotgun barrel in old Ural's face, and Ural does kind of classic demon talk where he's like, I have a special plan for your wife and your kid, and yeah, just kill me. In this scenario, Ruiz does not take the bait. He he goes back out to his car and, and, and appears to you know maybe just sleep in his car because then the other guys, uh, Pedro and Jaime, show up, and Ruiz immediately you know has a plan, and now it's like, all right, we're taking him out of town. We're just going to dump him somewhere. So, But it was this close to him just blowing the dude's head off, mm-hmm. which would have made uh, Uriel very happy because that would have taken this whole thing to the end game right there as far as we, we know. And he would have um, birthed this demon that we will find out it requires some time in the incubator, apparently. Well, and we should stress too that one of the rules that we that really gets driven home right here, and then we find out more about later. But one of the rules uh, in this world is that you cannot use firearms, right, on them. Maria uh, Elena stresses that yeah, you can't you can't kill him, you can't shoot him, right? In this, yeah, th- that is the one of the most interesting things about this mythology is the the higher the technology that's uh, weighed in, the more useless it is. And in fact, it's counterproductive. And like uh, we can, in a weird kind of a way, we can say that the society was caught by surprise by this plague, possession, whatever, because earlier incarnations of the civilization were more apt to be able to handle it. You know, a tribal people, pre gunpowder pre-electricity this was a society that could handle this kind of thing so much so that it got put to sleep but then when it wakes up and it's like we think that we would be in a more advantageous position because we have better tools to throw at it it's actually the exact opposite it's like you can't shoot you know you can't shoot it can't turn on the lights like that they're, they're like actively like don't turn on the lights don't use electricity the electric light thing is usually ignored by the characters along yeah, the but way but i i do love that that specific rule because it, for one thing it plays to the the idea that technology is less than useless but also it forces the characters to be in the dark while they have to deal with this which i love i mean that's, yeah. that's so good it's so smart there is a scene where Jaime is driving, like, and he keeps putting his lights off, like, I assume for this reason. And then he'll just turn off when he's, you know, he puts the headlights back on only when he absolutely has to. And I, I assume that's what's motivating that. But it's, you know, cool and creepy that he's driving without 
without his lights on. The guys essentially agree, we'll, we'll try to take on the logistical challenge of dragging this giant carcass out of this shack. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great scene. It is so good. It really is a logistical challenge, right? Like that's, I I really love that it becomes the nuts and bolts of how do we get this super laden 400 pound monster, literal monster. I'm not, I'm not shaming the out of this house. Like I we can we carry him in the blanket? Like what do we do? The sheet proves incapable of holding his carcass as right. it uh, dumps him on the lawn in all of his pussy <laughs> glory. <laughs> and then apparently they, they obtain a, a, a stronger blanket from the homeowner and that is enough to get him into the bed of this pickup. It seems to me that both Pedro and Jaime know this is a bad idea. Yes. Yeah. Like everyone is like muscling them into it by virtue of his status. Definitely got that feeling. But I mean, it's not like they have a counter plan. I mean, it isn't like, you know, Ruiz, if we do X, Y, Z, then if we do X and Y and Z, bad things will happen. That isn't the conversation. Ruiz is just like, hey, let's do this. Crazy. Let's just dump it in the field. And guys, like, they know that it's a bad idea. But it's like, well, what's the counter argument? You know, so their plan is just to run away. Right. Like, they're like, we're just going to go. Well, and they can. The thing is, though, they can still do that with this course of action. I, I think the police scene was very important because that sort of eliminated any other option because they know they can't, the two guys know they can't shoot him and they know the cleaner's dead and they're probably not going to, the, the first cleaner took a year. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I can get on board with how they go along with this because yeah. theoretically, if they can move it far enough away that they'll be outside of its range of influence. I mean, it's not a, a real fix, but it's better than leaving him here, you know, theoretically. Yeah, I mean, especially if the idea is like the the only true remedy that they have in mind is distance. It's like, yeah, let's create more distance. Let's throw throw them on the middle of a remote field, and then let's just get the fuck out of Dodge. And while they're driving away with this guy with pus all over the tailgate and it's pretty nasty and shit, he Ruiz like kind of congratulates them for doing the right thing, but he's turning his head. And I I don't think it's a coincidence that while he's turning his head, there's a school kid with his bike, walking his bike inexplicably in the middle of the road. I don't know that, that, that even the film posits that that's an entirely innocent coincidence because of what we find out about the relationship between the kids and Uriel. I don't think this is like just a, a flat out accident. What happened? Yeah, I, in, in the moment of that scene, I was forgiving the movie a little bit because it's kind of a common trope that like characters driving along, especially in a horror and thriller driving along and Oh shit, there's someone in the road, uh, you know, and, and that's right. how we run people off the road or get people in trouble. X, Y, Z. I thought that that was the film making the rare choice of reaching for a familiar trope. But now in hindsight, 
we yep. realize that uh, Urla has been dumped into this pickup truck, and because he's the hive mind, he's summoning servitors that we don't know exist yet, including this kid. Uh, I don't think that that's giving it too much credit. I, I, I honest, I do think that that's kind of what's going on. Yeah. This is one of the kids that will be instrumental later on like right. this kid probably kills his teacher this kid definitely contributes to the rebirth of of the demon within uriel this is a movie that actually subverts expectations correctly because i thought it was a broad trope choice and i was forgiving it for that but by the end of the film i'm like oh no it's actually using the camouflage of a broad trope to hide another layer of mythology that it hasn't revealed to me yet. And it's actually far more interesting and sinister. That's great. I mean, if you can hide cool shit inside of what seem to be cliches, that's fantastic. I mean, it's smart writing. I had not, it hadn't occurred to me that the children were already sort of infected by uh, Uriel, Uriel. So my thought, I was more just struck by there's a line when after they swerve where you hear Jaime says, holy shit, that kid was on his way to school. And that was when having watched it a second time, I put together, oh, like they're they're laying the groundwork for all the stuff that's going to come later on. But I think those are I think those are all actually uh, uh, plausible and, and probably smarter than what I came up with. So. Okay, good. Thanks, John. Thanks for making me sound dumb on the podcast. Appreciate that. (laughs) Nothing brings me more pleasure than that. (laughs) Not the first time, and it won't be the last. Welcome back to uh, KUCH, and uh, we're here with another episode of Making Vic Look Dumb, uh, episode number 218. I'm not dumb, guys. Uh, we didn't actually say what happens, but yeah, they they swerve around this kid, and apparently it seems like no harm done. But uh, they find out like um, another fifty kilometers down the road because that's how they measure their their distance in Argentina. That uh, that the guy is uh, Uriel is no longer in the bed of the truck. I know. And so, that's so yeah. funny. <laughs> I love how mad Ruiz gets about it, but then they're just like, "Yeah, fuck it. All right, well, yeah. We're, yeah. we're far enough from home." After he's expelled pus everywhere while you're trying to get him in the truck, you want to go back and like try and get him in the truck again, or like, yeah, I, 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 I mean, that's the, far enough. Yeah, that's the thing is like the the film really excellently sells what on paper would seem to be like dumb or. character deficient choices but like after watching those guys drag that horrible body into the truck it's like you really want to do that again i mean i'm fully on board with these guys feeling like yeah fuck that let's just get out here (laughs) yeah i don't i don't question it at all and they had that conversation i think right around that point where ruiz is like you know i think do you think this is far enough well how far are we and well we've gone about you know 200 kilometers and he's like I think we should go another 60 or 70 kilometers, which is really just them like, I don't know. Right. You know, yeah. it's, it's, you can see that these just winging it. 
they never like dictate one of the rules is and and you must be 5000 kilometers from one of these things yeah that, that mm-hmm. that's a gray area yeah. Uh, well, by the way, I want to say at this point, like if anyone listening has still not seen the movie, this is your last chance to to get out. Because uh, I think up to this point, this is all like the very early going. I don't want to ruin in anything for you from here because there's a lot of crazy shit that happens. So if you have not seen the movie yet, I urge you to go check it out and then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. But from from this point forward, we're not going to be worried about spoilers. And actually, 55 minutes in seems like a good place to end this episode. Come back next time for the spoiler discussion as we continue our scene-by-scene breakdown of When Evil Lurks. Until then, adios! Adios!